I'm Amanda Olberg, Managing Editor of Education Next. We invite you to join this week's Education Next podcast, available online Wednesday morning each week at educationnext.org. Across the U.S., states and school districts are busy rethinking their student discipline policies. Concerns that schools are suspending and expelling students too frequently, and that students of color are especially likely to experience these forms of exclusionary discipline, have led 22 states to revise laws related to student discipline. The U.S. Department of Education has warned school districts that policies that disproportionately impact students of color may violate federal civil rights laws. And presidential frontrunner Hillary Clinton appears eager to maintain this pressure, having proposed a $2 billion plan to help schools in reforming their discipline policies. But what exactly do we know about the causes and consequences of exclusionary discipline? And can we be sure that alternative approaches will work? I'm Marty West, Editor-in-Chief of Education Next, and my guest today is Matthew Steinberg, Assistant Professor of Education Policy at the University of Pennsylvania and co-author with Johanna LeCoe, of What Do We Know About School Discipline Reform, an article that will appear in the winter 2017 issue of the journal and is available now at educationnext.org. Matt, thanks for taking the time to join me today. Marty, thanks very much for having me. So your article argues in a nutshell that the evidence for many of the most salient critiques of exclusionary discipline and in support of alternative strategies is relatively thin. One thing that's very clear, however, is that students of color are far more likely to experience suspension or expulsion while they're enrolled in school. So help us understand those numbers, but also what else we need to know in order to know what to do about those numbers. Yeah, I think that's, I mean, this is an important, obviously a critically important issue. Um, the, The first issue around disproportionality, it's clear, at least in the aggregate, that uh, minority students receive a much larger share of suspensions and expulsions than, than non-minority students. I think one of the key pieces of information that we sort of point out, point to in the article is that much of the uh, differences in school discipline meted out to minority students and students with disabilities compared to non-minority students and students without disabilities is explained at the school level. And I think much of what we know about that, um, the school level effect has to do with the fact that, you know, it's long been known that the ways in which we sort students um, into schools uh, tends to be based on uh, residential location, and particularly in urban schooling contexts, right, we know that residential location, uh, particularly for, my, for minority students, uh, means that these students are coming from um, neighborhoods with higher crime rates, uh, higher poverty, uh, quite a bit more life trauma, and what we're doing is sorting these students into the same schools and really concentrating disadvantage and therefore likely concentrating behavioral um, issues within the same school and as a result, we may be seeing you know, higher rates of, of school discipline. And in some work I've done in Chicago, we find that, in fact, um, you know, the schools with the highest rates of, of, of suspensions are those schools serving minority students in disproportionately economically disadvantaged neighborhoods. Right? So in terms of the evidence base being relatively thin, what we're really referring to is evidence that provides 
causal um, that can, can that can lend itself to causal conclusions about the causes and, like you said, the consequences of exclusionary discipline, and, as well as alternatives to to suspending and expelling students. So you're not saying though that just because disproportionate rates of suspension and expulsion are explained by the school students attend, uh, that we shouldn't be concerned with either the overall levels or those differences across racial or ethnic groups, but it just suggests a very different type of potential solution and potentially a different set of unintended consequences. Is that right? I think that's, I think that's exactly right. I think what the disproportionate rates of, of exclusionary discipline point to and the fact that, again, the, 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 the little bit of evidence that we have that, that characterizes much of the difference in um, exclusionary discipline by race uh, as a function of, of school-level differences points to the fact that we really need to think about targeted responses uh, at the school level. Right and targeting responses um, and resources right for schools that are serving you know, disproportionately disadvantaged minority students right so again um, I think what the the, the the disproportionate rates of discipline point to right are the again these sort of sorting patterns of students within communities across schools right and gives us some, a window into um, you know the, the locations in which we really need to target resources. And again, going back to some work that we that we had pre- previously done in Chicago, we find that when, for example, relational trust and social capital within schools, so so the relationships between adults and students are in fact better, even in schools that serve more disadvantaged students. Those students and teachers report less. Um, disorder and less um, sort of fear of, of uh, less fear and, and safer school environments than schools that serve more advantaged kids, but there are weaker relationships. Now, the question, of course, is what policies and practices are um, effective at developing the types of social supports and social capital within schools, particularly those schools that serve, um, you know, the most disadvantaged kids. And one of the you know, one of the sort of school-wide supports that we talk about in the in the article is school-wide positive behavioral interventions, right? So really providing resources at the school level to develop meaningful relationships among students, among students and their peers and teachers. And there is some experimental evidence that shows that this, in fact, improves school safety and um, improves sort of climate outcomes for even disadvantaged schools. So I think, you know, Identifying so disproportionality gives us a window into I think how we locate resources, and then of course the question is what types of resources and responses are effective. So let's before we jump ahead to PBIS systems and other solutions, talk a little bit more about the consequences or sort of the arguments that are made about the need for solutions. Um, and I think you mentioned two claims that are made about the use of exclusionary discipline. One is that it actually undermines disorder or trust the types of attributes of a school you were uh, mentioning, attributes of a school climate at the school level. So mm-hmm. uh, schools that rely on suspensions and expulsions more heavily uh, are likely to see lower levels of school climate in important areas. Um, how convincing is that argument? So I think that argument and I've got and I've produced evidence of, of this type is correlational at best, right? And so what we're seeing at the school level, like you said, we're seeing schools that have higher suspension rates have 
for example, student and teachers reporting, um, you know, greater disorder, worse overall school climate. But of course, the question is, what's the sign of, what's the causal direction, right? Is it that um, more disorder leads to higher suspension or alternatively, more suspension leads to higher disorder, right? And when we talk about the, the evidence base being relatively thin, we're, we're again referring to the fact that we don't have any real traction on the directionality of that causal mechanism. So, you know, it, it, so I think that the arguments in favor of um, alternatives to exclusionary discipline that lean on sort of correlational evidence to me, you know, it can be very misleading, right? Because again, you know, it may be the case that we reduce the use of exclusionary discipline in the most, um, you know, disadvantaged schooling settings, and we don't see any real change in school climate and potentially worse school climate, right? But again, this is an open empirical question because we yet don't have any strong causal evidence that suggests, again, higher rates of suspension or, or more, you know, greater prevalence of, of exclusionary discipline leads to, in a causal way, right, differences in school climate and trust and disorder. And you make a similar argument, I take it, at the student level as well. Obviously, one of the concerns that people have about exclusionary discipline is that it contributes to the so-called school-to-prison pipeline by which students who are ex suspended or expelled um, are far more likely to end up involved in the criminal justice system as young adults. Um, but you argue that the evidence that we have of that phenomenon is largely correlational as well. Is that right? That, that's right. And again, so, the, so, you know, I think it's important to consider the counterfactual here. So the question would be, would a student who was suspended uh, interact with the criminal justice system in the absence of the suspension, right? That's the real causal question we want to know, right? And it is certainly the case that there is quite a bit of empirical work that's looked at the correlation between students being suspended, so at the student level, and student outcomes such as dropout, uh, grades, achievement, um, you know, sort of behavioral outcomes. So there's, there's quite a bit of correlational evidence that suggests, you know, students that are suspended have worse, um, academic and non-academic outcomes. So there's, there's no argument that that evidence exists. Again, the key p question is, what would, happen, what would have happened to the student's outcomes in the absence of the suspension? And if it were the case, for example, that students' outcomes were relatively unchanged in the absence of the suspension, then it's hard to argue that, in fact, there is a, quote, school-to-prison pipeline. But again, the point is, you know, there's, among all the correlational evidence, we were unable to really find strong causal evidence. Now, I can say that some work that I've done in Chicago public schools and some work that I'm currently doing with my co-author, Joanna LeCoe, um, in Philadelphia public schools, right, is really trying to understand what are the consequences of suspensions on um, individual student outcomes, again, leveraging the, the policy reform to try to generate this causal evidence. I think we point out in the article as well, you know, much of the much of the reason that we don't have strong causal evidence is because we haven't had the types of natural experiments like district level policy reforms that again try to reduce the use of exclusionary discipline um, and allow for um, better estimates of the of the causal effect of suspensions. And again, you know, this is in a world right 
as many as many folks might know, that we can't randomly assign suspensions, right? So many educational interventions that we study, whether they're curriculum interventions uh, or other sorts of interventions, school choice or market-based type reforms, where we can randomly assign a voucher or randomly assign uh, a school to take up a curriculum and look at the causal effect, we can't do that with suspension. So we really need to rely on policy changes that are just recently taking place have taken place in the last couple of years to try to produce the type of evidence that informs this debate, I think, in a more causal way. Now, I can imagine some listeners out there saying, yes, I understand that, but you don't really need to prove to me that suspensions and expulsions are a bad idea. I mean, at the most basic level, they result in removing students from the educational environment, giving them less opportunity to learn. Surely we should be looking for alternatives. So, um, what do we know about the alternatives? What what are the alternatives to a heavy reliance on suspensions and expulsions? You mentioned one before, PBIS systems adopted at the school level. Where does that fit into the overall set of policies and programs that uh, schools and districts are considering? That's, I mean, that's a great question. I would also add, Marty, to your last point, right? So folks may say, yes, we know that suspending kids – and excluding them from the classrooms may have, you know, classroom may have adverse consequences. Of course, the the corollary to that question or that 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 issue is, what are the effects on the majority of that student's peers, right? In the when that student is suspended or when that student is brought back into the classroom under policy reforms. And again, this this spillover effect, if you will, or again the the effect of suspending one student on his or her peers. Right, because again, the majority of students in school districts, whether it's Chicago or Philadelphia or other urban districts, majority of students, 70, 80, 85 percent of students, don't receive a suspension in a given school year. Right. So again, the question is, what do we know about the effect on their peers? And again, there's very, very little evidence to really inform that that question. And again, you know, with these new policy reforms in the last couple of years at the at the district level, it will it allows us to sort of get some insight into that question. But I think that's a, that's a critically important question as well that we don't know and don't really have any good empirical evidence on. But with respect to you know, your question about the alternatives, I think you know, our scan of, of what is a quite, a quite a big literature on alternative practices um, at the school level suggests that there are, you know, there are many practices and, and programs and policies taking place, and we sort of summarize them more broadly in the, in the article. But it seems to us that the, you know, PBIS is really one of the only approaches that has strong causal evidence to support um, its efficacy, right? In terms of sort of restorative justice practices, which are, which are rather widespread and promoted, uh, and what they do is sort of try to, you know, they have uh, peace circles or mediational opportunities where adults and students can, can talk about the, the misconduct, talk about the consequences, um, talk about sort of how to change behavior. We couldn't find any strong causal evidence or experimental evidence on the efficacy of restorative justice. But that doesn't mean that restorative justice is not effective at reducing suspensions or changing student behavior and improving student outcomes. But again, like we do in the article, it's a call for more research to really try to dig into if we're going to move away for, from exclusionary practice practices, which in and of themselves may be harmful, again, we need to think about what we're replacing them with and the efficacy of those reforms. And again, the only, you know, PBIS seems to have really strong evidentiary support, right, uh, as a means of improving school climate. Yeah, it seems like the important thing at this moment is to make sure that we implement 
new approaches in ways that allow us to learn from that implementation. If one of the reasons we don't know much about this area is that we haven't really been paying attention to it or doing things in different ways for a couple of decades now, this is really an opportunity in order to try and build this evidence that you say is so thin. I think that's exactly right. I mean, I think not only, again, with the district level reforms, which allow for, you know, this sort of natural experiment to, to take place and allow for additional insight into the effect of suspensions, it all, you know, as districts take on um, and implement programs and policies at the district and school level, uh, whether it's PBIS or sort of other approaches to um, targeting students with behavioral problems rather than excluding them, we really need to think about doing it in intentional ways, as you've, as you've described, Marty, and doing it in ways that allow for study of the, the efficacy of these reforms, right? Whether that's, you know, school-level uh, RCTs, randomized control trials, or, you know, other ways of designing interventions that allow for rigorous evaluation. Because, again, without rigorous evaluation, we're still in the sort of same space that we've been in where, you know, we've got ad folks on both sides of the ledger on this issue that are leaning on largely correlational evidence to support, um, you know, their, their arguments for or against exclusionary discipline and for or against um, certain programs and policies to replace exclusionary discipline. Well, that sounds like good advice to me, Matt, for all of us, maybe good advice for uh, Hillary Clinton if she becomes president, as seems likely, and is thinking about how best to invest $2 billion in helping districts reform their school discipline policies, maybe a heavy emphasis on evaluation would be uh, a step in the right direction. I think that I, I would certainly agree with that. Well, thanks, Matt, for your time today. Thanks for the great article in Education Next. No, thank you very much for the time. You've been listening to the Ednext podcast. If you like what you've heard, be sure to subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts so that you don't miss an episode. And while you're there, please leave us a review. It helps us find more listeners, and more listeners find us. Thank you for tuning in to Education Next's weekly podcast, released every Wednesday morning. For more on education reform, visit us online, educationnext.org. <laughs>